Before we even start in this section of scripture, I do love a few thoughts that, that we see going through there. When Peter went to the house of Cornelius, he says again this in verse 14. The angel had told him, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. God has been pleased to accomplish his salvation through the proclamation of a message. It, it, it's not the work of angels. We are mere men. We don't save, but we have been made messengers, ministers of that message of reconciliation. But it's important to note this for Cornelius, for the Jews, for everyone in his household. The only way in which they would be saved is through the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Received by grace through the working of the spirit with faith in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful and unshakable thing that we never should lose sight of as he goes through here. It is in the declaration of a message. And let us not Forget that. That is the way that he would be saved. That is the way that all in his household will be saved. Indeed, all whoever will be saved are brought forth by the word of truth. As the spirit implants it into us. A living word. Causing us to be born again to a new and living hope. It's glorious, isn't it? And, and this is the message that he came with. And then it even tells us towards... In the beginning of this, listen, now the apostles, verse 1, and brothers who, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of the Lord. This gospel, this word of salvation, this recognition of who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross... Bearing the, on himself the sins of a multitude of sinners. That they might by grace be cleansed and made new. This message is going forward. And it did not stop in Jerusalem. It did not stop but bore fruit in Samaria. It continued throughout Judea. And here in Caesarea in the broader Judean region. It has come to the Gentiles. And the gospel is being received even by the Gentiles. The word of God is being received. Now this message, this truth is being spread throughout Judea. They came to know the Gentiles are being saved. Jerusalem comes to know the Gentiles. God is saving people by his word. Now when you hear that, what does your heart say? What does your mind respond? Do you, do you not feel like, praise God. What a glorious thing. Hallelujah. May it continue to spread. May many continue to come. I mean, the verse 1 is a verse that you would think the immediately response should be very singular. All glory to God who continues his work of salvation among the nations. Amen? And yet, what is the first thing that we see as he returns to Jerusalem? Is it praise God 
Tell us about your experience. We want to we hear of how the grace of God was made known to the Gentiles as you delivered the message of Christ. We, we want to hear about the grace of God at work and the power of it. That's what I would hope to see, right? But what do we see? I mean, it's shocking what you see. Because instead of their eyes being fixed on what God is gloriously doing and the grace of gathering people from darkness to life turning them from sin and idolatry to know follow and serve the living God transformed lives new birth a new creation in Christ Jesus their eyes are not fixed on God not even fixed secondarily on the manifestation of God's power wonderfully at work in the world. But they want see one thing. You did something I don't like. This is what, this is what they see. You, listen to verse, listen, we see the criticism here in verse 2. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, which often to our best understanding are those who, who have God has mercifully saved out of the sect of the Pharisees, which tended towards legalism, even as Jews, and that tendency towards legalism, that tendency towards uh, uh, really an ethnocentric a self-nation glorifying perspective, it, it carried in. I want to ask you this. Did you find that when God wonderfully saved you from your sin, that all of your flaws and all of your errors and all of your failings and all of your weaknesses were gone? Would that it were so, wouldn't you? Me too, I wish that it were so, but a lot of times the very same weaknesses, the very same tendencies that we had, we still have. Now God is merciful and patient with us and we are so thankful for that. But let us listen and learn from this. They criticized him. When, in my estimation, they should be praising God they're criticizing men. Now, I will tell you this. Criticism is easy. Criticism is comfortable. <laughs> Criticism comes really naturally to most of us. You know, I, I'm highly skilled at criticism. And I say that not as a self-compliment. You know, the, if you plead with God, restrain that tendency in me and help me to, to look with praise on those things that are the highest priority. I certainly want to be discerning. I certainly want to address issues of truth and error uncompromisingly. But I don't want in, in the course of my life, in the course of your lives, for us to be so caught up in the stumblings and errors of our brothers and sisters that in the process we miss the great joys and rejoicings of God at work among his people. We, we I, I just don't want to lose this because I, 
This is what God says to Job in Job chapter 40 verse 2. Says this, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. Or the King James there says, shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Here, here is the, the, the tendency. We want to be wise. We want to discern truth and error. Right and wrong. We want to walk in a manner that's pleasing the, to the Lord. We want to carry on and cling to sound doctrine. That itself as we live it out. Would be an ornament. Would be a glory to God. That it would, our life would adorn our doctrine and all would esteem the excellence of God in the eyes of those around us. In the sense that they would see our good works and glorify our God who is in heaven. Noting this, the tendency to become a fault finder. And a corrector. This is not the beginning. And we see this thing. Very, this very th same thing happening. In the life of Christ. Listen to these words from Mark chapter 12. Verse 13 and following. They sent some of the Pharisees. And some of the Herodians. To trap him in his talk. You know, and I do get just a bit bit concerned about this. Because this tendency. We can even have Good motives and good men out there. But before you knew it, know it, the entirety of their life, goal, and ministry is the criticism of others. And it's not the clarion cry of the excellencies of our God. And the greatness of his grace. And the power of his mercy to change us. And to make us more like him. To grant us victory over our sins. And, and, and to, to unite us in love and peace and hope. You, we live in an age where these things are not even hidden in a corner. You can find a multitude of men who have dedicated their YouTube channels and their ministry. Where ultimately all they do. And it is necessary. Don't, don't mistake me to point out truth and error. It is necessary. And it is valuable. But we can get co so caught up in the errors of others. that We take our eyes off of the excellence of of Christ, and I just don't want us to do that. They came in here to Jesus with with the purpose of trapping them. So many dear men, and and, and I, I've counseled at times uh, younger men in the ministry, uh, who who are outside of the ministry, who who tend to listen to a bunch of things online, and and it's good for us to seek to learn, and. And recognize mistakes and, and criticize. But, but then what happens is we find someone who's wrong. And who has an influence for wrong. And we spend hours and hours and hours listening to this guy who teaches wrong. Then we spend hours and hours and hours preparing rebuttals for the fact that he's wrong and why it's wrong. And pretty soon all of our life ends up caught up and wrapped up in Listening to and studying what is wrong and pointing out that it's wrong 
And somehow in that we've missed glorying in what is right. Walking in what is right. Provoking one another to love and good works. Yes, we want to encourage discernment. But, but we don't want to become, as we are so thankful for the grace of God and the spirit and word that have opened our eyes to see deep and profound spiritual truths. But we want to glory in those truths. We want to glory in the God who's revealed in those truths and not spend all of our time saying, they no good, they wrong, they misleading, they dangerous, they, 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 watch out, watch out, they, 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 watch out, wrong, 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 bad, bad, evil, evil, watch out, turn, watch it. But what about follow, love, share, speak? Give, help, encourage. That gets somehow lost. And I know, and I'm, again, I'm trying in this whole process. The, the, the biggest challenge is, excuse me a second. Right now, you're spending a lot of time criticizing people who criticize. Like, oh my goodness, thank you. I get that. <laughs> and, 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 and it can be a sp spiral and and we see so oftentimes that tendency that to Jesus again in Matthew 15 they came to him and said why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders again the, the challenges all start to come in why are they doing like this why are they doing like that and, and, and oftentimes it's all about that's not how I think it should be done that's not how I've ever seen it done and our own opinions. And then Jesus answers them back surprisingly to them. Well, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? We can have the tendency to, to, to so focus on the way we do things. And the way we know things. That something's wrong. Just because that's not how we do it. <laughs> something's wrong that's because that's not how we've always understood it. But if, if all we ever do is cling to the traditions that we've been taught, then do we ever grow? Do we ever progress? No. So they ask the question, why? And then Jesus asked them a question back, why? Why do you ignore the commands of God for the sake of your tradition? And we want to take that very seriously. Why? We want to make sure that we make as a priority in our lives what we do is what the Word tells us to do. And we need to grow in that ability to discern what are the things that I'm familiar with, comfortable with, that, that we do, that maybe are just the way we do them and the way that we like them. As opposed to what do the scriptures clearly say are important and a priority. I mean, we're all going to have preferences. And those preferences are going to differ. You can find a sweet little person somewhere who's going to say, I, I want a church that sings hymns only. You know, and I do love hymns. And you're going to find another person who says, I don't even understand the hymns. I just want to sing, uh, you know, uh, uh, simple songs where I can open my heart and close my eyes and lift my hands. And the person who says that looks at the person uh, uh, and says, they who sing hymns only, they don't really know how to worship. 
And the, and the person who's singing hymns only will say, well, they, they, they try to worship in the spirit, but not in truth. And everyone's got a great way, a fine way of criticizing one another. You know, and everyone potentially tends to have the right answer and the right expectation. When I was in college, there was a man whose name I will not share with you. My wife knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> he had told me that he felt called of God to a ministry of confrontation of leaders. So he was going to look at the leaders of the Christian university and, uh, and wherever he would see something that what he felt was out of step, he would go and he would confront them. And he did this. He wasn't just talking about it, which is a horrible thing to talk about. But he did it. And he would do it while secretly, nefariously recording the conversation when he went in for the confrontation. Now, as such, he confronts someone in a position of authority. And they, in the context of the school and authority, assert their authority. But he's able to do it in such a way, when you listen back to the tape, he sounds so patient and so... Uh, and, and the other person sounds so bad. And I told him, what is your goal here? I mean, what, what is your goal here? Is, is it, if you see missteps, to, to nudge them in a more God-honoring direction? Or is it to present yourself as the singular self-righteous know-it-all? Who, who can condescend to everyone that God has seen fit to give leadership opportunities you know it was it was a sad thing how much that individual was committed to it and i hope and pray that he got tired of it pretty soon because you can only go to so many churches before nobody wants you and, and here's the reality will he ever find an organization a church or a home where there is a flawless person. He won't. You know, and generally it is my. You know, it, it, it's, it always seems. When, it, when someone says it is my humble opinion. It seems what they're about to say is. Is not something they hold lightly and humbly. But something they're firmly committed to. Uh, it is my firm opinion. <laughs> uh, that this individual should understand. When he set. In a room alone. He was likely in a room with somebody who had far more errors than the people he oft confronted. You know. And it's good for us to keep that in mind. Some people's perspective as in Matthew 12. They came after Jesus. It says in verse 10. Um, they asked him is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. Some people are always looking for the opportunity, asking a question, goading, prodding, because they want to see the misstep. They want to see the mistake. Now, here's the reality. You'll find it. You'll find the mistake. You'll find the misstep. Because there is no person Who's absolutely flawless. Their desire was that they might accuse him. Verse 14 of Matthew 12. How they might destroy him. 
even sometimes it's, it's, it's harder. This happens in general. But I encourage you prayerfully to consider how, how even more challenging it is for many in the context of ministry. Because they end up being targets and people uh, pointing their fingers and people talking. And what's interesting is this. In Matthew 12, Jesus told the parable of the wicked tenants. You know, and it said this. They were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Now listen closely. Jesus had told the parable against them. Now wait a second. So Jesus specifically geared his message that day in a way that would correct and confront those people who were there. That's not right. He shouldn't do that. He should just preach the word. Well, the word often does what? It confronts and it corrects. And we live in a world in which someone will, you know, the feeling that wells up is like, um, I feel like you were using that passage to correct me. I feel like you were using that passage to make your point. Uh, well, I, I hope uh, that, yes, I was making that point. Yes, I was using that passage. The, and yes, it happens to be what we talked about last week. So sorry. Nonetheless, did I misrepresent the word? Is what was taught, even though it seemed, it seemed specifically designed for you, which we, I would hope in my case to avoid those accusations as much as possible by trying to preach sequentially through books. Um, but it's impossible to avoid it altogether. And to some degree, the things that are presently weighing heavy on your heart and heavy on your mind do influence your own thoughts and communication. But hopefully as it's influencing your thoughts and communication in preparation, you're bringing everything under the influence of the word. So that you're seeking to know what is God's word? How does it lead in this? So that said, preachers... And teachers must be bold enough and ready to face, as Christ did, those intentionally, those accusations. You preached that against me. To which the only right response can, ought to be, is what I preached faithful to the word of God or not? If it is faithful to the word of God, and it is a point at which we have contention then it was the most necessary word for you to hear today, actually. But we start to take things so personally. And I think, oh, God help us in this. Even when I, when, uh, this isn't unlike, not only do we criticize those actions, we go behind and sometimes we can not only criticize what people do, but we have the unique skill of not only knowing what they've done, but why they did it. What their motives were behind that. You ever, that, ever, that ever happened to you? Now I'll, I'll note this. I, I'm, I'm striving for as much transparency as possible. When I see someone do something. I'll, it, it also is natural for me to seek to discern. Why they've done what they've done. 
what I ought to do is be careful not to make a final determination based on my thought. Maybe sometimes, for example, it's not uncommon, and I've heard these things happen before, where someone will say, on this event, on this occasion, on this, this evening, you know, said a few words to you and, and, and you didn't really reply. You seemed uninterested in, in me at all. I think you don't care for me. I think you don't love me. On and on and on and on like that. And what, what that individual doesn't know, who's, who's interpreting all, they, they didn't seem interested. They didn't really respond to what I was saying. They, they ended the conversation quickly and moved on. They've got a problem with me. They don't care for me. See, that, that, that's what's being assumed. What m might be the issue is they've had a really hard week. Somebody that they love may be in perilous circumstances. They could be struggling with a multitude of things that God only knows the struggle that is going on. And instead of seeing that, that they're a little standoffish, they're, they're, they're not very communicative, instead of making it about me, Maybe I ought to pray for them. Maybe they responded that way because they are going through something right now that is very hard. A dark providence, a frowning providence, a hurtful season, a struggling time, and they need what? My patience, compassion, and prayer rather than my criticism and judgment. But I will say this, which one's easier? Which one comes more natural? The criticism and judgment. Do you know why? They weren't nice to me. They didn't seem to esteem me enough. God help us overcome that tendency. In 1 Samuel, we see that very same kind of thing within the context of criticism. Here, David's older brother criticizes him. And you're probably familiar with this. In 1 Samuel 17, 28, Eliab, his oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said why have you come down and with whom have you left the few sheep in the wilderness I know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle what's his brother say I know why you're here I know what you're thinking I know why you're doing it has anyone ever said that to you Second question, you ever said that to anybody? <laughs> yeah, I know. Now, in this case, he is completely convinced of it. If I were a young guy and my brothers were at war, I'd want to see what's going on. And, and so that's the tendency, right? Whatever our, what would be my perspective if I was them, that must be why he's doing it. But if you read that passage, do you know why David is there? His dad, Jesse, sent him. He said, take this to your brothers, find out how the war goes, and find out how they are doing, and report back to me. So David went to the war. Why? In obedience to his dad. His dad asked him to go. His older brother looks at him having arrived and says, what? I know why you've come. I know the presumption in your heart. I know the evil in your heart. Is he right? Now I ask you this. If David had said, it's not true. Honestly, it's not true. Dad sent me. 
Yeah, right. Sure, he sent you. I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. Do people think like that? We all think like that. And, and this, this, this criticism comes down. And I want to remind us of those simple words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. It says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and not see the log that is in your own eye? Now, I do want to emphasize something that we often miss in this passage. What does it say? First, then, remove the speck, the log from your eye. First, remove the log from your eye. Then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So get this. It doesn't say ignore the speck in your brother's eye. It doesn't say just blow it off and close a blind eye to possible wrongdoing and error. But it does say what? First deal with yourself and your own heart and your own motives and your own mistakes and weaknesses. Because once you've done that, then you are going to proceed with a greater deal of caution and compassion in removing the, the speck from your brother's eye. You forgive others even as Christ forgave you. You have mercy on others because of the abundant mercy that's been afforded to us. Right. And so we, we see these beautiful words. And I remind you of these simple things in James chapter three. First of all, it had said that not many should become teachers. But then it goes on to say this simple words that includes teachers and pretty much everybody else. It says this in, in James three, verse two, for we all stumble in many ways. Can I get an Amen. Yes, we all stumble in many ways. And, and, and next week, we're going to still stumble. Ten years from now, if we're still alive, we're going to still stumble. As long as we walk in this flesh. Now, God willing, we will grow. God willing, we will increase in graciousness and patience and compassion and forbearance and love. We will increase in discernment and overcoming and resisting temptation and walking in faithfulness. That there will indeed be good progress in a transformation from degree to degree into the image of the Son of God. But until we see Him face to face, we're still not like Him. When you see Him, you will be like him. Until that time, we all stumble in many ways. And when a brother or sister stumbles, do we want to just jump up and down and point that out? Do we want to get on? Because the fact is, is we all stumble in many ways. We should be coming alongside of each other, not to kick them while they're down. But to bend down with them, stoop down, and lift them up. Because we're on this journey together. We are to be members of one body, united to the same head, with one spirit, one peace, one love, one mouth, one voice, one judgment. All of this oneness, right? Towards one another. We need to strive for this. And so this is the warning that is there. In the context of this, now I want to drive on to the second thing that really presses what's happening here. This criticism is most strongly rooted in 
custom and culture. Okay? What's familiar to us? Now, I want, to, want us to be careful because actually this same thing happens today. Because we live in a democratic, individualistic, materialistic America. And this is the way that things are done in countries. This is the way that, uh, that things are done in, in politics. This is the, and so the American way. Uh, the American way becomes for many people the ideal way. The American dream is the ideal dream and the American way is the ideal way. Wrong. I have no desire to sound un-American. But we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. Right? That is our priority. And as such, just a simple reminder of this. We may, in spite of what some people say or think, we don't live in a country with a king. Do we? No, we do not. But as citizens of heaven, do we live in a country of a king? We do. We live in a country where we seek to have a say and an influence on how things are done by voting and so on, right? With regard to how things are to be done in the kingdom of God. That phrase is a hint for where I'm going with this. Right? Who makes the decisions? Who makes the rules? Who makes the laws? All right, so if God says this is what's right, this is what's good, and this is what's true, and everybody votes otherwise, too bad. It doesn't matter. Because who's the king? And who's the judge? And, and who is the one that everyone must give account to and stand before? It's not a question, is it? We know the answer to that, but the challenge is we get so caught up in that. And so maybe someday, and trying not to be too critical, but striving towards discerning, you might find yourself in a church that has just committee after committee after committee where everybody's trying to weigh in on this and that. And, and so little of that time is spent searching the scriptures and so much of that time is spent sharing opinions well in my opinion in my experience in my previous church well you know i read somewhere that they do it like this and it's like what is going on and so these kind of things will happen somebody maybe will say um so many systems, uh, churches develop so many patterns. They, uh, they'll have uh, care groups or cell groups and uh, all kinds of different church growth methodologies and functions. None of which are necessarily wrong or evil. But someone will say, I don't, you know, I don't understand why this church doesn't have those cell groups or what church in the New Testament clearly had those? And so you're judging a church as somehow faulty because it doesn't have something many other American churches have. You know? And so we just got to learn somehow by the grace of God to step back from it every time. And remember, God is God. Jesus is Lord. He is 
the head of the church. I mean, we say that, don't we? He is the head of the church. While at the same time, so many people who say he's the head of the church treat someone or some others as if they are the head of the church. God willing, when proper lead church leadership is done right, those who are in leadership of that church recognize the headship of Christ and, and they try to carefully, prayerfully, graciously evaluate every decision they make in a way that would be pleasing to God, in a way that would honor Christ. Well, yeah, they're trying to do that, but here they didn't. Yes. Interesting criticism. Now, is it that they didn't honor Christ and they didn't do it the scriptures way? Or it's different than your previous experience. It's different than the majority of churches. We've got to be careful because so many times our criticisms are rooted in our culture. As was here, their, their criticism was what? You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. We talked about this before. Even Paul, uh, Peter had said in the previous chapter, you know, it is unlawful for me to eat with men such as you. Now, there was no place where the scripture indicated that it was going to be unlawful for them to eat with Gentiles. Now, regarding the nations that the, in the land that they were given, they were to not make treaties with them. They were to not have mercy on them. They were to be done with them. But those that would come from other nations outside of that, there wasn't just this tacit line that said, nope, anybody who is a Gentile, you have nothing to do with them. You don't eat with them. This was a custom. It was a tradition rooted in their own opinion. And it simply is not right. I want you to note this. Not only it's important. In, in Acts 15 we're going to see this. Some men came down from Judea. And were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. You cannot be saved. And want to be careful. Because people's tendency to say yeah. Those Jews in the scripture were pretty committed to their traditions. Shame on them. You know, their mistake stuck in their old covenant Judaism, not able to move on and see the liberty that we have in Christ. Shame on them. Well, yeah, it's not just them. The Gentiles in Acts 16, 21, says, speaking against uh, the apostle in their ministry said they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept and practice everybody every nation every kingdom every people every church every denomination every community almost every family and home and individual has preferences that get rooted in their own customs it's what we do this is how we do it you know, we could go around and say, well, how do you do Christmas? How do you do Thanksgiving? And if you're in the certain rooms, people will say, well, this is how we do it. Or this is how we don't do it. And that kind of makes us better than you. What? Whoa. But that happens, right? And, and you face all of these. And I say, in the midst of that, where is Christ? Where's the glory of Christ? Where's the name of Christ? Where's the honor that should be coming to him? I want to note this for you for a moment. Uh, in Philippians 1, 15, Paul is in prison. 
And he says that some are out there and they are speaking the gospel. They're speaking the message of the Christ out of envy, out of rivalry. Their hearts, their intentions are not right. Others are doing it out of goodwill and some are doing it out of selfish ambition. So he says their motives are not right. They are self-serving. Then I love what by grace he's able to do here. You know what he says? Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. So in the midst of that, he, he is going to point out rivalries is wrong, dissensions wrong, envy is wrong. James is abundantly clear on selfish ambition and rivalry and self-promoting and the dangers of those things. But in the midst of this, Paul was able to recognize this. We live in a world of mixed motives. We live in a world of stumblings and failings. But in the process of all of that, I don't want to miss this. Is there something I can praise my God about? Is there something I can glory in? Self-serving, arrogant, manipulative, and so on. For their own gain. But somehow in the midst of it, Christ is still being proclaimed. Some are still being saved as the gospel goes forth. And so in that... I'm going to rejoice. Just that God would help us. Because that, that helps us from, from, from getting caught in this descending spiral of criticism and negativity. We're looking down and looking at men and looking down. In the midst of all that's going on. Take regular occasion to look up. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Fix your eyes on things above, not on the things of this earth, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is the, this is the, uh, the, the highest priority that we must commit ourselves to. I want to show you, he, he moves on to clarification in verses uh, 4 through 17. He gives the ex explanation, he reminds them, let me, let me tell you how this has happened. You criticized me. You've, you've done it because you're kind of trapped in your own perspectives and customs and culture. Let, let me explain to you how it's happened. Because actually for Peter himself, this was not easy. <laughs> That's why he tells them about his vision. Rise, kill, and eat. I will not. Common and unclean, I have nothing to do with. What God has called common, what God has called clean, do not call common. Three times this happened. I, I, again, whenever I look at that, I'm just, I'm just slightly baffled. Because I think the first time it happens, rise, kill, and eat. Well, I don't want to eat dirty stuff. I said it's not dirty. Rise, kill, and eat. Okay. I mean, right? He's, he's already told you, don't call it unclean. But what does it seem Peter does the second time? Uh, I've never done that before. It's dirty. I said it's clean. Don't call it that. Third, rise, kill, and eat. And what's the third response of Peter here? Ah, if you've called it clean, then I should not make distinction. I'm going to go ahead and get myself some bacon or whatever it may be, right? It should, uh, but. Peter again the third time, which is not surprising as we've come to know Peter, 
hesitates. What, what was happening in this, this dynamic advance into the new covenant nation. A, a people of God that, that, whose identity is rooted in Christ. And not in other historic heritages. But it's rooted by faith in the person of Christ. We become a, a holy nation. We become the people of God. This remarkable reality where God is now breaking down those, those distinctions that he had made with the national people. And he's establishing in its place that singular distinctiveness. And that is in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in following him, there will still be many practical outworkings of how we live. The things we don't do and the things that we do in obedience and faithfulness. That will distinguish us from the world. No doubt about that. But it's not going to be rooted in all of those things that, that, were, that were earth bound to a national people before. God was bringing this remarkable change. And he says that, explains it this way in verse 11, in verse 12. And the spirit told me to go with them and make no distinction. All right. Why did you go to Gentiles and why did you eat with them? He could effectively say, wasn't my idea, was not my plan. I, 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 I didn't want to do that. I, I didn't want to do anything that violates our, own, our, our customs and our laws. But God said, you go and you do it. And here's the thing. Do I cling to my customs? Do I cling to my tradition? Do I cling to my opinion? Do I listen to God? This is what he says. And this is. Uh, he says make no distinction. And so we went. I, I, I love the way that the, the scripture says it here. At the end of verse 17. Who was I. That I could stand in God's way. God does it. God, that doesn't sound right to me. God, that's not the way that I would do it. Yeah, stop that. <laughs> Be done with all that. Who are we to stand in God's way? So we just need to step back and continue to say, God, what would you have me do? How would you have me live? How would you have me worship? How would you have me serve? How would you have me honor you? How would you have me love my brothers and sisters in Christ? How would you have me address errors? Address flaws? And the scriptures give us instructions on how to rebuke and how to go to people and correct it. The scriptures, as I'm, as I'm saying, that we've got to be cautious against a, a tendency to criticize does not mean there is no place for proper correction. Okay, there is in a proper way. But the difference is proper correction has a clear goal to one, the purity of the name and person of God, that he would not be dishonored and shamed. And, and secondly, closely tied to that, the restoration and reconciliation of the errant individual. It's not gotcha. 
That's not the goal. The, gospel, the goal is, brother, stop that. Stop that. Let's go this way. Let's go this way together. Come on. Come on. We can do this. Not, not you're never going to amount to nothing. You're, you're, you're misleading people. You, no, that, that can't be it. Must be different. And, and as, he, as he lays this out, God says, make no distinction. Uh, further, if you really look at it, there's a few things that happen here. He says, um, we're running short on time, so I'm going to wind this up. God not only told him, but then God also demonstrated that he, ha that he has made no distinction. Not only was there the vision that gave a pictorial image of it, there was also the clear word of God, make no distinction, the Spirit told him. But then further than that, as he stood there and preached the gospel to them, what did he see? God gave to them the very same gift, the very same Holy Spirit that he gave to us when we believed. God has made no distinction. Who are we to make distinction? Now, I love that he saw this here, and we don't have time to unpack it very much, but the sad reality is he knew this, right? So, so why would you sit and eat with Gentiles? God says, make no distinction. I'm not going to make a distinction. But later, when Paul writes in the church of Galatia, what does he say? Peter came down with James and the others, and when people came, he drew back. From eating with the Gentiles. And in his hypocrisy he also misled Barnabas. Now I ask you this. Did Peter know better? I mean right here in chapter 11. Peter was the defender of why it is designed by God. And appropriate to make no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. God has made no distinction. We will make no distinction. Yes, I went to them. Yes, I ate with them. But then what did he do later? And so I want to remind you of this. We all stumble in many ways. <laughs> we all know the right things to do sometimes. And just because you know the right thing, do you do it every time? You know, when we were when we were arriving at the airport, I had a, a made an intense personal commitment to patience. You know, and that did not work out so well for me. <laughs> Everything that could have possibly gone wrong went wrong with us trying to get through the the immigration lines. That it took. So crazy long. And, you know, I felt like I was being pushed to the absolute brink. And I knew everybody else was to blame. And certain people in particular were exceedingly guilty. You know, and, and all this is going on in my mind. And, and I had even prior to, while walking down that hall, committed myself to patience. Yeah. Didn't quite get there. I'm still committed to that and still committed to making progress in that. And I, and I survived it. And I may have turned red in the face at times and, and, and perspired a lot. But I do that, you know. Uh, uh, but we're all going to make mistakes in many ways. You teach about this, but you don't do it. I don't do it perfectly. You're right. 
I'm never going to do any of the things that I teach and preach perfectly. I want to. I really do. But I, I just can't yet. But I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to keep working. I'm keep praying that God will strengthen me and enable me. You know, and, you know, I like to hold a, a peculiar delusion that having gone through the, the tension that I went through in the airport, that from now on my patience level has improved. But I doubt it. You know, and it just uh, setting on to this, I love what it says in verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. The King James says there they held their peace. Not good enough. They fell silent. They stopped their disputing. They stopped their criticizing. They were done. Well, if I like this. So if God has made no distinction. If God, God's word and God's will is the reason you did this. We got nothing more to say. Like Job. He puts his hand over his mouth and says, I am of no account. I don't matter. My feelings and my opinions don't matter. What God says is what God says. And I like, now, some people say, well, this, this is contradicting itself. It says they fell silent and then it says they glorified God. Yeah, they fell silent from the criticism. They ceased that sound, thankfully, because it was filled with another sound. The sound that I'm trying to urge us towards today. What was it? The verse simply says, they glorified God, saying that God then, to the Gentiles, has also granted the repentance that leads to life. God does what he wants. He's not captive to our customs. He's not captive to our culture. He's not captive to our desires, our whims, our opinions, our preferences. He is Almighty God. And God help us to, instead of embodying at times, verse 2, looking at others and criticizing, help us to listen and consider what God is doing. And let it be that in all of our discernment and at times necessary rebukes and at times uh, uh, encounters of, of encouragement and correction. Let it be in all of that that it is, it is laced with praise and glory. For example, brother, we can't, you can't keep doing this because our God deserves more from us. He, he's, he's worthy of our purity. He's worthy of our faithfulness. He, he, has, he who has given his own son and given his own life for us to give up this or give up that. It is a small thing by comparison. So that all of our, all of our correction, all of our encouragement, let it be that the glories of God, the excellencies of Christ, the, the outworking of God's power and plans are always in our conversation. God would help us in those ways. And we'll think uh, progress a little deeper on these things next week. Let me pray as we move to the Lord's Supper.